You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. Good morning, Life Tree. You're going to be team one. You're going to be team two in the middle. And over here on my left, you're going to be team three because we're going to do a little bit of Bible trivia work in a moment. We're on this series called Jesus and Outsiders. It's exciting to see how consistently Jesus was about the person who was outside on the margins. I remember receiving a teaching when I was a young believer, and the person who was teaching us said that if you wanted to understand what Jesus was about, he said it was the little, the last, the least, the lost, and the dead. The little, the last, the least, the lost, and the dead. He says, wherever you could find people that were like that in description, that's where Jesus was. So we're going to do name the Bible character trivia game in a moment. But first, let's just say together what's in quotes. Image is everything. Let's say that together. Image is everything. And you're like, huh? So we're going to make sense of that a little bit later. But image is everything is a central thought to what we're talking about this morning. Team one's going to have to get ready in a moment. What we're going to do is put out a quote from the Bible, but I'm not going to have the Bible address, so it won't say what book or verse or chapter it's from in the Bible. might seem a little obscure. Maybe some of you are just going to jump right on it, and you're going to have to figure out who said it, to whom did they say it, what was the context, if you can like round it out a bit so people kind of get, oh, yeah, 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 now I understand who said it and who they were saying it to, what the background was, and the Bible address, if you know it. So for some of you who maybe haven't read the Bible a lot or studied the Bible a lot, this is going to be like way over your head. But the teaching concept is going to be really simple and straightforward because it's always about Jesus and outsiders. So team one's got to be ready. So team two, team three, when you see the quote, you can't say anything. Okay, you have to play fair. You can't say anything. It's going to be hard. Some of you are keeners. You're going to have to just hold it because your turn will come. But team one, you guys have to be on now. Uh, let's, Let's put that first quote up there, Elijah. See what it says. Okay. And what will you give me to sleep with you? Is there anyone on team one that's going, oh, yeah, I I know who would have said that? Lorraine's going to rally the troops. She's looking around. Does anyone think of that quote, and I've purposely chosen to not let you know gender-wise if it's a man or a woman? Oh, we have an answer. Oh, it's a guess. It's cool. whose name was Judah. Okay. I'm always going to give a second slide to round it out a bit. So let's go to the second slide. It's called the help for. And so she also said this, and you're correct. It is Tamar. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. So it's Tamar. There's two Tamars in the Bible. This is the first one that's mentioned. The other one was a daughter of King David. The context is crazy. you got to get into, like, deep understanding of what was going on in the Bible. Judah, like one of the tribes of Israel, like the tribe from which Jesus would be born. He has a son. His son marries Tamar, and his son dies before they have any kids. And the Jew, Jewish law was, your next son has to marry that same woman who's widowed because you've got to provide a future and future generations. So Judah's second son married Tamar, and he died also. 
and there was no son. Well, Judah only had a third son. And he was like, this is not feeling good for my future. And so he said, but didn't do what he promised. In the future, when that son grows up, I'll let him marry you. I won't get into all the story, but the daughter-in-law, Tamar, dressed up so that Judah, her father-in-law, wouldn't know who she was. And after he'd been widowed and his wife had died, which was her mother-in-law, he slept with Tamar not knowing who she was. In Jewish law, this is going to sound crazy, he was supposed to. If he didn't give a son, he was supposed to give a future. But he hadn't. He'd withheld his son. He'd withheld himself. And Tamar deceitfully tricked him into doing what he was supposed to do. So that's the story of Tamar in a nutshell, and it's in Genesis chapter 38. So if you don't know that story, and there's a lot of great ones, if you've never been into the, the, the chapters of the 30s and the 40s of Genesis, oof, it's a riveting read. And it makes a lot of sense when you get into the New Testament. So that's the first one. Well done, team one. Good job. Okay. We're going to go on to team two. This is for you guys. So let's pop up quote number two, and the quote is, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. So only team two can go at this one. You guys can think about it, chat a little bit amongst yourselves if you need to. If no guest comes out, no one's confident, we'll add the help for quote number two. We're just on team two here. Does anybody have a guess? Anybody have a guess? Oh, Carolyn, do you have a guess? It's not Jonathan saying it to David. Do you guys want to do another guess? It's okay. You think it's Rahab. Okay, let's go to the help for quote number two. It is Rahab. And this is Rahab speaking to the spies before Israel has entered the promised land. Two spies are sent by Joshua, and they're actually in the city that's going to be their first conquest, Jericho. Right? And she is so full of faith that what's gone before Israel is basically a reputation. And the reputation is your God can trash all the other gods. Your God's able to defeat on your behalf all the other enemies. So she's full of faith. She acknowledges their city. It's, it's melted in fear. Uh, anybody know Rahab's vocation? She was a prostitute. They tied a little scarlet cord in her window, which was in her house, which was built into the wall of the city of Jericho. And when Joshua led the group that didn't storm the city, but sang and marched and praised God around the city, and the walls fell down, everybody in the army was commanded, make sure you spare one family. Everyone in Rahab's household who's hiding in the house that's built into the wall where the scarlet cord is gets to be saved and preserved. And not only are they saved and preserved, they become part of the Israelite nation. So you see people brought into the promise. Okay. Jesus and outsiders is the theme, remember. So we go on to team number three. How are you guys feeling? Feeling pressure? Okay, good. You're honest. Let's let's go to the third quote, uh, Elijah. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. Do you know how hard it is to make up questions that aren't too hard and aren't too easy? 
And preferably to not give away gender, so you don't know if you're guessing a man or a woman. Okay, anybody have any guesses? You can have a few guesses. It's cool. Sorry? It's not Samuel's mother. No. You've put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant. Do you guys have a guess? The guess is, is it Ruth speaking to Boaz? You're there. Okay, let's go to help for quote number three. This will help you out a lot. In this quote, Ruth is speaking again, but she's speaking to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she talks about how the gleaning went. Remember, they were refugees returning from Moab, where she was a native. Ruth was a Moabitess. And not only had her father-in-law, Naomi's husband, died, her own husband had died, and her sister-in-law's husband had died. And when you end up at a wedding, and people talk about where you go, I'll go, and where you live, I'll live, those amazing covenantal quotes that are used in a wedding story, that's Ruth speaking to her mother-in-law, right? Where did the tribe of Moab come from? That's Ruth's heritage. Does anyone know? Not Esau, because Edom came from Esau, but close, because Edom, Moab, and Ammon are often mentioned all on the one side of the Jordan River, Esau, Adam, and Moab. That's right. Do you remember when the city that Lot and his family lived in was destroyed and Abraham had pled for their salvation? You know, what if there's 50? What if there's 40? What if there's 30? Well, there was like a few and they were very faithless at the best of times. And Lot's wife was turned into salt as she looked back and they fled into the mountains and it was really just Lot and his daughters. And they got into that same situation that Tamar had found herself, who we just spoke about. And they said, there's not going to be a future for our family. And they got their dad repeatedly drunk so that they could get pregnant as sisters. And Ammon and Moab were the people that came from that incestuous relationship. That's Ruth's background. You seeing a theme of Jesus and outsiders here? Okay, because their story also gets brought into Israel's. There's some common threads here we can see. The three so far that we've mentioned are all women. And they're all women featured in a specific part of the Bible at once. Does anyone know where that is? It's the genealogy of Jesus, written from a Jewish perspective by a Jewish writer inspired by the Spirit, Matthew's Gospel. When you in your Bible today end the Old Testament and you see the promise of Elijah, one who will come like Elijah, turning hearts of fathers to children and hearts of children to fathers, and then you slip and you're into the New Testament and it's Matthew, you're at this genealogy. And if you have a Bible in front of you, check out Matthew 1. And the way Matthew summarizes after hitting 17 verses is he starts at Abraham, he ends up at Joseph, but he keeps on in the story of the genealogy of Jesus, inserting women. He inserts Tamar. He inserts Rahab. He inserts Ruth. And he inserts additional as well. The fourth one that's mentioned is in verse 6. It doesn't actually name her name. It says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Bathsheba. Bathsheba was raped by David. Then when it was discovered she was pregnant and David was guilty as all get out, he murdered her husband. And God shows that the kingly line of David would come through that relationship, 
through Solomon. And then you come to the sixth woman in the Matthew genealogy, and it's Mary. Unmarried, divinely pregnant. And everyone's going, as if. There's scandal all through this genealogy. There's people looking over their shoulders and judging. There's people from not Israel. There's people who are out of line relationally, out of covenant in their behavior. Matthew chose to write this account of Jesus' life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection, from, as I said, a very Jewish view. He wrote as a Jew, thinking as a Jew. He doesn't explain Aramaic or prophetic quotes because you're Jewish. You should get it. That's who I wrote it for, right? And I want you to think about this. All of us are in a family, an earthly family. And just like the story of Jesus' earthly genealogy, God's curating your story. Matthew goes to the trouble of going down 42 generations in Matthew chapter 1. There's three couplets of 14 to get 42 generations, starting at Abraham, to get to Joseph and Mary, the mother of Jesus. God could have chose, obviously, and he does for you and he does for me, any lineage, any bloodline, any ancestor. And for the savior of the world, God in the flesh, he chose these people to be Messiah's ancestors. It's mind-blowing to those of us who find reasons to keep people out the church and out the kingdom when God's whole theme and message through these 42 generations is, yeah, you don't belong according to people, but you belong according to my plan. Come on in. And the more we get in love with a genealogy teaching like this, which you may have previously just hopped over, the more we start to see the fabric of 42 generations of God, including and including and including. It's remarkable. So my summary point here, this is on the slide, is what we conclude from Jesus' genealogy in Matthew is Jesus had a sketchy pedigree. And Matthew wants us to know this. And remember, he's writing to Jews. They knew the genealogy. They needed a reminder. Oh, yeah, Bathsheba. Oh, yeah, Ruth. Oh, yeah, Tamar. He could have come from any line, and this is the line where there's deception, and there's murder, and there's extortion, and there's rape. And this is the line of the Savior of the world from an earthly perspective. Now, we've spent a lot of wonderful time this morning in worship talking about the goodness of God and believing that he can overcome every situation. And I believe that in the middle of many places of those 42 generations, there were people praying and people believing and going, circumstantially, this looks hopeless. And none of them, certainly at points in their faith journey, going, you know what? The savior of all nations and all mankind is coming from this series of circumstances. This is setting us up for success. It's like you just never would put that together. So, yeah, sketchy pedigree. So, Matthew hones in on aspects that aren't meant to elevate the story, but I'd say rather to ground the story in the reality of a God who in Jesus is going to come down to us. 
and he's going to come to live with us, as Paul wrote in Philippians 2, if you know the Philippians 2 passage, to empty himself. Talk about being reduced. We often at the nativity, at Christmas, we talk about that reduction, that it's a, a teenage girl, and she's unmarried, and she's got a story that people are truly doubting in her circle. And then this unlikely set of circumstances where they go back to Bethlehem, which, by the way, is where Ruth resettled with her mother, Naomi. Because remember, it was their hometown based on ancestry. So when you study Matthew 1, you get Bethlehem showing up back dozens of generations, because that's hometown. And we often, in the narrative of the Nativity, see all these unlikely circumstances in the moment. Oh, and it's announced to shepherds. They weren't really the insiders. They were the outsiders. But we often miss all the 42 generations beforehand and go, oh, it's always been about outsiders. It isn't an off rhythm that God's playing when Jesus shows up. It's in beat, but it's jazz. And no one can predict what he's playing. So if you are at a point in your family, your relationships, your neighborhood, your business, and you go, there's no hope. Circumstantially, there's no way. This is an irredeemable situation. Can you believe that a redeemer can come from an irredeemable situation? Not just he can redeem it, but actually a redeemer came from these types of circumstances. So with that as a backdrop those first 17 verses of Matthew 1, we get into verse 18, and it says, this is how the birth of Jesus came about. Jim's going to come up and read to us those remaining verses in chapter 1, and we'll wrap up with a few final thoughts. Guys, give it up for Jim. He's going to read from Matthew 1. Wow, Stacy, that was quite an introduction. <laughs> Good morning, church. In his presence, that's where we belong right now. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at the verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, you son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew, 
knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Thanks, Jim. Jesus has always been much more interested in expanding the kingdom of God and welcoming all over creating a sense of exclusivity and keeping others out. And I don't know about your heart, but mine often gets mixed up on this. I create boundaries and rules and guidelines that tell me why others don't get to get in even though I did. I was cycling this last week for a few days off with my wife, and I brought along this little tiny Bible because I don't like reading the Bible on a Bible app. I like having a piece of paper in front of me. So it was one of these little Bibles. And I cracked it open. It was a good news translation. I was thinking, well, I'm preaching on outsiders. I'm curious, is there a glossary in this Bible? Will there be verses about outsiders? And I got into the back of this little pocket-sized edition, and it had outcasts but not outsiders. And I thought, oh, this could be good. So I read what was there, and it said, in other translations, this word is translated sinners in the gospel. It refers to Jews who are not allowed to attend synagogue for worship because they were breaking rules about food that shouldn't be eaten, and they were being friendly with people who are not Jews. Such outcasts were looked down on by many of their fellow Jews, And Jesus was criticized for being friendly with them. And then it said, see Mark chapter 2, verse 15 and following. So I turned to Mark chapter 2, and this is from the good news, and it'll come up there for you, but I'll read it. Later on, Jesus was having a meal in Levi's house. A large number of tax collectors and other outcasts was following Jesus. And many of them joined him and his disciples at the table. Now, I want you to see the picture. Jesus is at the table having a meal in the home of a guy that no respectable Jew should be in the home of. And he's got his disciples who've been trained to follow him in his ways, saying we're trying to make the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And the people who keep coming through Levi's doors are more outcasts, and they're at the table with Jesus and his disciples. So his disciples are getting schooled in being friendly to outsiders. Jesus heard, oh, so let's get down, uh, some teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with these outcasts and tax collectors, so they asked his disciples, why does he eat with such people? And I love that Jesus doesn't let his disciples answer. They're still in training. He wants everyone to be clear why he eats with such people. Jesus heard them and answered, people who are well do not need a doctor, but only those who are sick. I have not come to call, I love this, respectable people, but outcasts. So whenever I think in my mind there's a reason why someone else should be out, I've stopped understanding that I wasn't respectable. The very sin I was saved from now becomes reactivated in my life to say, but it can't save you. And I create these made-up, completely phony (laughs) manifestations of who can come in and who can't come in, the kingdom or the church. Because we know Jesus never created these boundaries. He was always here to break them down. 
So that joined him and his disciples at the table, I find a very beautiful picture. He showed his disciples that meals were meant to be shared with those whom society typically pushed away and left outside. In fact, the best place was to host your event in the home of an outsider so that all other outsiders would feel welcome. What matters to God and his primary goal and actions that prove this through human history is bringing outsiders inside his kingdom is the number one goal of Jesus. Now, I want you to just think about in our own minds, our own thoughts, actions are always preceded by beliefs, right? We do things based on what we believe to be true, though they may not be true. So any point where you or I have a bias or a prejudice to oppose or to keep out someone, some type of person, we're thinking something that doesn't agree with God's thoughts. So our thinking is wrong, and then our actions become sinful. So the question is, where does our thinking go wrong? And really, most of all, how do I line my thinking up to agree with God's thinking? Because his actions proved how he's thinking. Right? He really did show that clearly. So my belief that someone is or should be an outsider is what causes me to act in a manner that keeps them out. But what does God think? The slide says, God thinks each person bears his image. Remember, image is everything. God thinks each person bears his image and should be welcomed into the kingdom. And we know that Jesus' actions prove this. You just say it again with me. Image is everything. Because anytime I'm not seeing the image of God in you, and you're not seeing the image of God in me, we're thinking thoughts that don't agree with God's thoughts about ourselves. And I think it's so perverted that not only do I get saved from my sin, but then once saved, I go, oh, good, I'm safe. Now I'm going to create reasons why you shouldn't be. And that's the part I think that if Satan can't keep us from being saved, he just wants to be having us think we're really respectable and worthy of being saved. And then somehow excluding others on merits that they don't have, that we are now telling, like, it gets messy, doesn't it? There's nothing about that thinking that lines up with how Jesus lived and acted. Right? I have an evening call every night with my parents to see how they're doing. We've talked about this and prayed about this for a few weeks. And I was asking my parents about this the other night. And my parents, when they were planning to be married, quite young, my dad was a very new believer, fired up for Jesus. And he were going to go to Bible college and they were going to become pastors. And my mother-in-law, my mom's mom, my grandma, sorry, my maternal grandma, his mother-in-law, says to them on the phone one conversation just before they're married, but you can't. It's a waste of time. And they thought she was oppositional to their marriage. And she said, no. People can't get saved who go to church that speaks English. They had come, my grandma, both sides of my family, had come as refugees persecuted for their peace-loving Mennonite values in Russia, and they'd gone to places like Uruguay and Steinbach, Manitoba, and good old Abbotsford, and they went to Mennonite brethren churches, and they worshipped in German. And these kids of theirs had been raised worshipping God in German. And they were Mennonite, and that mattered. 
and German mattered. And all of a sudden, my parents were going to speak English, read from a modern translation of a Bible, and try to make and encourage people to follow Jesus, not in German, not in a Mennonite brother in church. She was like, it's unthinkable. It doesn't work. That was her in her 60s. Sorry, that was her in her 40s. She died in her 60s of cancer. And I want to tell you what happened over the final 20 years of my grandmother's life. She fell madly in love with Jesus and went from religious to, like, being crazy for him. And in her final weeks in hospice in the hospital in Abbotsford, her daily practice after she'd had breakfast was to pull out the Abbotsford phone book. And she didn't just dial Mennonite names. She dialed everyone alphabetically. And she used her bedside phone, which was provided beside her bed when she couldn't walk any longer. And she would phone people up and see if they were willing to speak to learn about Jesus. She went from so exclusive in her 40s that you had to speak a certain language and be in a certain building to being so open-minded and so in love with Jesus 20 years later before she died that she realized anybody in the phone book who'd pick up the phone was a worthy candidate to know Jesus. So if you're struggling, it's okay. Because you probably aren't as hard as my grandma was. I just hope you get as soft as she became in, in tender-heartedness towards others. My dad remembered that, told me about it, and my mom said, that'll preach. <laughs> like, absolutely. What a cool story of God working within us once we know him to say, and everyone else is welcome too. And so, final thought there. My goal, your goal I trust, Life Tree's goal, the call of the church of Jesus is to intro everyone to the one who forgives their sins so they can enter the kingdom. We know that some plant seeds and some water and some get to be part of the harvest and we all get to play a beautiful part that only God can see when he looks back 42 generations to know how it's all going to piece together. But it's a wonderful thing to be part of his story that he's weaving together and to know that everyone is welcome because image is everything. Come on, Jason. Let's wrap us up. Okay. So there's some things to chew on this morning. So just a final thought as we leave, and that is, uh, as Stacy was speaking, um, what area um, in your life or what area would you want to ask the Lord, be, you know what, this would be an area where I might be a little bit religious in this, and I'm going to need some breakthrough. So Stacy speaking, it's like, of course, this church, everybody could come to this church. Anyone to be welcome to be here. And then I thought, but would they be welcome at my table? Would I invite them to my home? I'd invite them to my church, but would I invite them to my house? Maybe that would be something that the Lord was speaking to me. And so let's just pray for a moment. And so, Father, I just ask that this week, um, that as we are reminded of the words that we've heard today, that your Holy Spirit would prompt us in ways where you would allow us to be uh, more connected to those who your heart is connected to and who our heart may not necessarily be connected to yet. And so, Father, we thank you for opportunities to be able to take this good news, this great news, and that you would give us opportunity this week uh, to share it, to care, and to love people in a way that uh, you would be unique and loving and gracious in it. We pray these things in your amazingly powerful name. Amen.
Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Life Tree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Life Tree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.